Well, good evening. Good evening. Everybody awake? No? Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. Good. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm glad to hear it. Well, my name is Benaya Kerbawi. I promise. Benaya is a Bible name if you're curious, but you can call me Ben for short if you want. Um, you might recognize me if you don't already know me. Uh, I got to lead the singing here. I had the privilege of doing that a couple of times while John was on vacation, and uh, uh, not that long ago. And I was really glad to be able to do that. And now I get to talk to you, which is just so much fun. I appreciate the opportunity for that as well. But let me introduce myself just a little bit uh, in case you don't already know me. Uh, I grew up in Akron by the university, which was definitely an adventure. Uh, let me tell you, I've got stories you can ask me later. Um, I uh, was homeschooled, uh, and about the time I got into middle school, we started making the trek out to Norton, to the Norton campus. This is the church that I grew up at. Uh, Jeff Bogue, who's the senior pastor of all the Grace campuses right now, he was my youth pastor back then, and uh, and uh, he looks exactly the same. It's kind of funny, but um, I graduated from Moody Bible Institute, and I was able to intern at the Norton campus a couple of times, a couple of these like one-year internships, and my last one in 2012. I got to be Pastor Jeff Martell's intern, um, and, and that was a, a privilege, and I spent the last couple of years as a pastor at a church in Portage County, so that's the, the brief on me. Um, also, I'm funny looking, in case you couldn't tell, I don't know, but uh, let me tell you one more story about myself that uh, will embarrass me, because if I embarrass myself right now, that'd make you uncomfortable, but if I tell you something embarrassing about the past, that makes you more comfortable, so I don't, I don't know how that works, but uh, <clears throat> I spent a year of my college time in Florida, and I'm doing a program down there at the Sebring Grace Brethren Church, and uh, it's a little bit cut close to Orlando, and the church had a church softball team, so I was like, I'll sign up, it's something to do, right, I don't know that many people down there, I'll get to know some people, but I quickly discovered that I had a problem, uh, when I get up to bat, uh, it was big softball, fat aluminum bat. When you make contact, it really vibrates and hurts my hands anyway. And if I made contact, I would throw the bat straight backwards, and it would hit the fence, the the backstop, about head height, right? You know where the umpire would be standing, <laughs> right at face level. And uh, so, luckily, we figured that out at practice. So I spent the entire season as a pinch runner uh, for the coach, the coach who also played on the team because he had a bum knee, but. Uh, I, I tried and tried at practice to change that, and some of you were like, "You just hit the ball." What are you, you know? But I, every time, if I missed, I was fine. But if I hit the ball, it would go. The bat would go right out of my hands backwards. And maybe one of you can explain that to me afterwards. You see, the physics are when the force multiplied by the. I don't know, but I couldn't change it for the life of me, and so I spent the entire season as a pinch runner. So I didn't have a successful career. So there you go. You, if you see me in the hallway afterwards, you can be like, ah, you can't bat. Um, and that'll be the way you know me. But uh, we've been, uh, we, started, we just started last week into a series in Acts called Multiplied. Because this is where God, multiply in the present tense. Uh, this is where God uh, multiplies his followers. He multiplies himself into those who follow him by bringing the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised beforehand, and then it multiplies from there. Those, the disciples and followers of Jesus with the Holy Spirit are empowered to multiply, and it's grown from there. And the fact that you and I know the name of Jesus is because it has multiplied all the way till now. And um, 
So we had some three meta-truths that kind of apply to the whole series, and uh, we can bring those up. One big story means that what God is doing now in your life, what God was doing in the church, in the book of Acts, and starting the church out after Jesus came and went, and what God was doing in the Old Testament through the prophets in Israel, it's all one big story of redemption. So you... Where you live, with your job, and what you try to do for God, it's all part of the big story that God is. You're not on your own. You're standing on the battlefield, the spiritual battlefield of eternity with a billion other brothers and sisters. And you can't see them all. You can see a few. But you can't see them all because they live far away or they lived a long time ago. But you're, they're with you. We're all in this together. And so that should be encouraging. Uh, we have an impossible mission. That sounds discouraging. But um, basically, what we are co- trying to accomplish and changing people's lives and changing our own lives and following Jesus, he gives us an impossible task to do. They're things that are beyond us. But luckily, God specializes in the impossible. And so we have to rely on him. So the things you're going to see in the book of Acts that God does in the church cannot be explained by a few people who thought Jesus was a cool guy. And lastly, it's a spiritual thing. The goals that we are given and the things that we do for Jesus ultimately boil down to what's going on spiritually in people's hearts and and, and between them and God. And so we have to not think of it as physical. And, and, and uh, so it makes prayer much more important. Talk to God about what, about, um, what he's doing in our lives and the lives of others. Uh, so those things you want to keep in mind as we look at the church and, and, and as it, you know, we multiply here through the book of Acts and, and all the different uh, weeks that will be in it. But uh, last week, Jeff talked about how God multiplied himself into us first. God never asks us to do something he's not willing to do himself. And, and so he multiplied himself in us, and then he asks us to go out with that power, the power of the Spirit inside of us, and multiply into others. And uh, that's how he got the ball rolling. But then you say, okay, now what? God is in us. The power of the Spirit is in us. What does that actually do? Well, that's a big topic, but... We looked at Acts 1 last week. We're going to look at Acts 2 this week, and we're going, to, we're going to look at a fellow named Peter, who's actually in the New Testament a lot, and say, what did it do in him? What did God do in him and with him? And let that inform us about what we should expect God's trying to do in our life. Okay? So we're going to be in Acts 2, but we're going to do some flashbacks. We're going to see Peter before during the Gospels when he's walking around with Jesus and then after once the Spirit has come. But we have to set the scene first. So you can go flip to Acts 2 um, and hold your finger there for the entire sermon and uh, we'll keep going back to that. But uh, let me set the scene for you for Acts 2 because we have to kind of cover a lot of ground so I'm going to have to do a lot of summarizing and then we'll also do some reading. But all the people who followed Jesus, he's, he came, he died, he rose again and now he's left and they're hanging out in Jerusalem not sure what's coming next. So everybody who follows Jesus is hanging out together, but there's a party going on. They don't have any privacy because Jerusalem's a big city, but they're, they're at a time called Pentecost, which if you look in the Old Testament is also called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. The word Pentecost means 50 Feast of Weeks. These are both names that refer to how, when it falls in the calendar. It's this many days, it's this many weeks after the previous holiday, whatever, but it's the, it's the Feast of the Harvest. They're celebrating the harvest. And like all of the Jewish holidays, it's a spiritual holiday, kind of like we think of Easter. 
And since the temple is in Jerusalem and that's the center of their worship, the Jews and anybody who fears God from anywhere, if they can, they travel back to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem gets real crowded real quick. So there's a party going on and God crashes the party. He shows up in a very dramatic way. Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit, this is when it happens. Visually, like tongues of fire comes down on the disciples and the followers of Jesus. There's a sound of a rushing wind. And they all start speaking the languages of all that they don't know. Which is cool because there's a lot of people around that speak these different languages that have traveled to Jerusalem for the, for the big uh, feast. And so... As you can imagine, causes kind of a scene. And this isn't the disciples like, hey, let's cause a scene. This is God. This isn't anything they could control. God sends visually, audibly. There's no way anybody can miss this. It's quite a commotion. And so a big crowd gathers around the followers of Jesus. They're like, what are you guys doing? And some people are like, hey, I'm hearing them in my language, and we don't speak the same language. And some people are going, they're drunk. They're acting like fools. They're drunk. That's what it says. You, I would encourage you to read this, uh, the first half of chapter 2, um, on your own time, because uh, it's, it's super. It's a very inter- interesting story, but we just don't have the time today. So that's the scene. There's a crowd gathering, and Peter decides, I better get up and explain. I better get up and tell people what's going on, because we've drawn a crowd now. <laughs> now, Peter is a guy... Like I said, he's in the, the Gospels a lot. So we already, by this point, Acts is the book about what happens after Jesus leaves. But he was around with Jesus, so we already know a lot about Peter. We have already can get to know him. And so we can compare this sermon that he gives now, look at that, see what he's like now, compare that to what he was like before, and see if there's any difference, if God has made any difference in his life at all. So as Peter gets up to speak and address the crowd and explain themselves... Maybe he's thinking about other times that he's opened his mouth and stuck his foot in it. So keep yourself in Acts 2. I swear we will read from Acts 2 uh, multiple times. So keep your finger there. But we're going to go back to Matthew uh, 16, verse uh, 21. Let me give you a little context here. So we're going to go back in time. We're going to do a little time travel tonight. I hope you wore your time travel gloves. Um, We're going back to a time when Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. And Jesus was a guy that kind of caused a scene. He, He taught things nobody was ready for. He healed people miraculously. And so there's a lot of rumors going around about him and gossip going on around about him. And so he's asking the disciples, what are people saying about me? And then he asks his disciples, what do you say about me? And Peter speaks up. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the one that God promised to send a long time ago to come and save us. You're the one we've all been waiting for. And he was right. But then he opens his mouth again, and he's not so right. Let's pick it up in 21. Now that people know who, now that the disciples know who Jesus is, he's got to tell them what he's going to do. From this time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So what we know about Peter is that he's a worldly guy. It's not enough to know who Jesus is. A lot of people know who God is. 
and don't care. They live life their own way. Peter knew who God was, but he had his own goals. Have you ever heard anybody talk like that? Have you ever felt that way? Man, God, I know you're like this, so I wish you would do this. I know you can. I used to pray when I was a kid all the time. Jesus, I don't like wearing glasses. I've had these since I was three, and I was ready for them when I was born. You know, it just takes a little while to figure it out. I'd like to not have these glasses, you know. We all have our own goals for God. We're like, well, you're powerful. Can you do some things for me? We treat him like a vending machine sometimes. And Peter, Peter knows who Jesus is. He's been with him for a while. And Jesus says, I've got to die. And Peter's like, that's not, what, that's not the goals I have for you. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And, and we don't want to read too much into that. Because a lot of people have written books about what he meant by that. But he explains it right away, so we don't have to wonder. He says, you are a stumbling block to me. I know the way that I ought to walk, and you are making it just a little bit harder. Your selfishness, and you not wanting to go along with what God wants to do, makes it harder for the people around you to go along with what God wants to do. It's a negative influence. It's pretty straightforward. And then he says, you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. But that's only natural for us, right? We instinctively know what we want out of life and what we want out of a God who can do all these things. So he had knowledge, but not wisdom. He was a worldly fellow in that sense. The selfishness not only led him away from God, but also influenced people around him. So, let's flip forward now. Let's go back to the future. Let's go back to Acts 2 and see what this worldly guy has to say to the crowd that is gathered around and is looking for an explanation. We'll pick it up here in, uh, what is it? Uh, where are we? 14. Acts 2, 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. First things first. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, that's not necessarily what we were expecting from a worldly guy. He shows discernment and understanding. He steps forward and he says, This is what God is doing. And we know that it's God because he told us he was going to do it way back. Joel was a prophet hundreds of years ago. And he said, God told me he's going to do this in the future. And they wrote it down. God predicted it. Well, he didn't really predict it. He said he was going to do it. And then he followed through. So rather than having his own goals and not knowing really what God is up to, he's actually in tune with what God is up to and can explain it to other people. So it's the reverse. Instead of being selfishly going his own way and actually making it harder for people to follow God, he is in tune with what God is doing and explaining it to other people. It's the direct opposite. So he moved from worldliness to wisdom. And it's not going to come up on your screen. Don't wait for it. Um, Just go ahead and write that down if you're the kind of person who likes to take notes. Worldliness to wisdom. Um, That is the first thing that we see, the change in Peter because of, of the power of God in his life. 
And that's quite a change to go from having his own goals and ideas, which is pretty normal, to actually being in tune with God enough to know what he's up to and being able to explain it through the scriptures to other people. God helped him understand, so he was able to not only participate with what God is doing, but but explain that to others, show them the way. Okay? That's part one. Two, now he has an opportunity. He's got everybody's attention. He's talking like a smart guy, so they're paying attention. He has the opportunity to share the gospel with them now that, he's, now that he's, uh, everyone's looking at him. But will he do it? Because these are the people that not that long ago had Jesus killed. Crucify him, crucify him. This is the crowd he's talking to. So what's he going to say? How's he going to say it? How will they respond? Is Peter the kind of guy to just go ahead and say it anyway? Let's flash back to Matthew 26 this time. Not quite as far back. And see if we can pick up from what Peter used to be like. And take a, take a shot at what he's going to be like. We're going back this time to the night Jesus was arrested. Jesus has been dragged away in the darkness... And Peter's hung out at the edge of the torchlight to see where they're taking him. Because Jesus is his master, his leader, his teacher, his friend. And that's very important to him. But apparently, it's not the most important thing to him. Jesus is in the house under arrest and he's hanging out outside wondering, waiting to see what will happen. And we'll pick it up in Matthew 26. 69, so well into the chapter. It's a really long chapter. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He's a friend of that convicted criminal guy they've got locked up in there. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. He's from Galilee. These are sophisticated Jerusalemites. They know that country bumpkin accent when they hear it. There's no way. There's no way they would miss that. But then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Apparently that's a tongue twister. So did he get away with it? He was hoping nobody would recognize him. Nobody would associate him with Jesus in case that got him in trouble too. Did he get away with it? Because he's weeping now. So we know that Peter's a coward. When push comes to shove, Jesus is not as important as whatever he was worried about, what man can do to him. And when we put what we fear that man can do to us, or what we hope that he can give to us, above God, that's idolatry. That's something that isn't God in the place of God. But that's the kind of guy that Peter was. Hebrews 11.6 says this. Hebrews 11 is this whole chapter where it talks about all these people that had faith and followed God no matter how hard it was. Whether they were going to get cut up or whether they just had to leave home 
or whatever it was. It's an amazing chapter to read. But Hebrews 11.6, right in the middle, it points this out. It says, without faith, without trusting God more than anything else, it's impossible to please God. If you're going to come to God, you have to believe He exists and rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Meaning, it's better, whatever, whatever you get out of following God, is better than what you get out of seeking after the rewards that man can offer. You have to know that God is better when you go after Him. Because in the end, you're going to seek one or the other. You're going to seek the acceptance, the reward of man, or you're going to try to please God. It's one or the other. You don't, Peter didn't really have a way to play both sides. He's either with Jesus or he wasn't. You're either with him or you're not. So what does Peter say? Let's go back to the future. Let's go back to Acts 2. And we'll pick it up this time in 22, where we left off. What's this coward going to say? Men of Israel... Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Meaning, God proved who Jesus was. You just didn't care. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. David said about him, and now he's going to quote Psalm 116, I'm sorry, just 16, Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is there to this day. Side note, I was in Israel ten years ago. His tomb is still there. He's still dead. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, and this is Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. Those are not the words of a coward. Peter has moved from worldliness to wisdom through the power of the Spirit, and now he's moved from being a coward to having courage. That would be the other thing you might want to write down. Don't wait for it to come up on the screen. It's not going to. He explains, and I don't want you to get lost in those quotes from the Psalms. 
He's, David is writing about how God will protect him. And David, you know, like David and Goliath David, who was king for 40 years. Or I can't remember exactly. I shouldn't say that because I didn't look it up. But he was king for a long time. And uh, he's, he's like national hero. You can still go visit his tomb right now if you want. And they'll make you put a little cardboard hat on out of respect. Cover yourself up out of respect, because he is a national hero. And Peter is saying some very bold things. He's saying, hey, that guy that you had killed, God proved who he was before you killed him, and then after that, he came back to life just in case you weren't sure. And you know that David guy that's our national hero? Jesus was his, is one of his descendants. He's the fulfilled promise that there would always be one of David's descendants as king, because Jesus is the real king forever. David here, Jesus here. Bold words in front of an audience that could have been very, very hostile. But we need that. We need somebody to speak up and tell the truth. Let me ask you this. How many lies do you hear every day? There are plenty of people willing to lie. Plenty of people willing to lie about God, say things that aren't true to make him look bad, or twist the gospel for their own benefit. There are plenty of people willing to lie. So we need people who are willing to stand up and tell the truth. Because if we don't, who's gonna? So he moves from worldliness to wisdom. He moves from being a coward to having courage. That's quite a change. It's quite a change. But we're not done. We've got one more part. Courage leads us to speak, and wisdom informs us on what exactly to say, what the right thing to say is. But if you've read 1 Corinthians 13, or you've been to a wedding anytime recently, you know there's one thing that's most important. That's love. <coughs> I'm going to say compassion because I think that's a little more specific to what we're talking about right here. But Peter is no resounding gong up there talking to this, this audience. And that's weird because we see a different Peter before this. we got one more flashback to do. John 18. In the other Gospels in the Garden, it doesn't specify who. In John, it specifically points out Peter, so we're going to go there. Um, the other ones, it just says one of the disciples. So, um, <clears throat> we're going to go to John 18, and I'm going to say I'm going to I'm going to say this to you because I don't want you I want you to see yourself in Peter, not judge him poorly, like he's a really bad guy. We all have our own selfish goals. We're all afraid of things. We all have fear, and we all have enemies, and you know who your enemies are. Real quick, do this check. Who is it that you argue with in your head all the time? Who is it that you know exactly what you're going to say if they say that to you one more time? If they borrow your stapler at work, or in my case, if they nail your lunch pack to the floor so that when it's lunchtime and you go to pick it up, it's an insulated lunch pack. Okay, it was an insulated lunch pack. Now it's nailed to the floor, and there's a hole in it where the nail is. You know who your enemies are. I told you, I did drywall when I was a young fellow, and uh, right, right out of high school, it was, my, it was my like after high school job before I went off to college, 
And there was these couple of guys who were still in high school, and they picked on me. I'm like, I'm older than you. This is supposed to work this way. Um, and they nailed my lunch pack to the floor. And, you, you know, when you're doing drywall, you have a pouch on with screws and nails in it for, for, you know, putting the boards up so you can just reach in and get one. And they would just reach in and throw one at me across the room all the time. And uh, you know how many times I've told them off in my head? They <laughs> were dead in real life. Just in my head. How many times have you, you tough manly men, how many times have you defended your wife or yourself or your pride or whatever in your head against some would-be assailant? It always goes differently in your head than it does in real life, right? It's like a movie. But you know who that is. Well, think about Peter. Peter followed this guy, Jesus, who was amazing. He had figured out at some point, God had revealed it to him, that this was the Christ and he taught things nobody had ever taught before. And he healed people miraculously. And he loved Peter in a way that Peter had never experienced before. He really values me. So who are these fools who don't like Jesus? And it wasn't just anybody. It was the religious leaders. And they were always coming and questioning Jesus and trying to get him in trouble. How many times do you think he'd told off a Pharisee in his head? How many times do you think when he'd heard rumors that they were going to come after Jesus, how many times do you think in his head he played out some kind of Jackie Chan fight scene where he takes them all out when they come to get Jesus? Because he's got a sword and he's not afraid to use it. And we're about to see that. I really, I really want you to see yourself in Peter that he's not, it's not so unreasonable what he does. Because we can kind of be hard on him. But I know who my enemies are. I know who I argue with in my head. And if I had a sword, I don't know. But anyway, uh, John 18, I, we, I promised we'd read from here. So let's go down to verse 10. This is, this is when, right as Jesus is being arrested. Okay? He's being arrested. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, saw his moment, saw that moment he imagined many times in his head, drew, it, drew that sword out and struck the high, piece, high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. What a way to get your name in the Bible. <laughs> I, that's not how I'd want to get my name in the Bible. And you, and you don't fault him for the accuracy of the swing. It was pitch black. And it was just torchlight. And uh, that's actually pretty good. The guy's dodging out of the way and whatever. Um, but Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Once again, Jesus has a purpose to fulfill. And condemning your enemies doesn't get it done. I well, let's, let's go ahead and flip forward. I'm running out of time here. Acts 2, back to the future. This is the guy we've been talking about. He's worldly, but not anymore. Now he's got wisdom. He's afraid, but not anymore. Now he's got courage. And he condemns his enemies. He knows who they are, and he's ready to fight them. Because after all, he's justified, right? He's on the right side. He's with Jesus, right? So he's justified in condemning those people that don't believe in Jesus. Justified in condemning the bad things that they do. Let's see what's in his heart now as we finish out this part of, uh, of 2. We're going to read 37 through 41. I saved the shortest one for last just for you guys because I know that the night is getting old. When the people heard this, okay, this is their reaction to his sermon where he just challenged him really hard. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Well, that's nice. They could have been real mad. When was the last time you said to somebody, Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. And they're like, What can I do to be like that? That like almost never happens, right? So, that's awesome. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. Now I want you to re read into it. See what he says, see what he does, and see what's in his heart. 
through that. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Talk about multiplying. That's a big number. But do you see what happened? Peter got to walk around with Jesus. He was special. So then when God sends the Holy Spirit, of course, he's one that gets it. And he's looking at his enemies, the people who killed, the, handed over Jesus to be killed. He's looking them in the eye, not so much later. And he says, everything God has given me can be yours. He holds nothing back from them. He could have said, if you're really sorry and you apologize to me and crawl around on your knees for a while, he says, no, everything I've got can be yours. God is free with his gifts. And he pleads with them. He genuinely cares about what happens to these people who are his, are his enemies. Pardon me, who are his enemies. So you see the difference? This is our third alliterated point. He moves from condemnation to compassion. Because it's not that you don't have enemies. It's not there aren't, that there aren't people out there who hate God and who are going to not like you because you follow Jesus. Or maybe they're just not nice. It's not that you're not going to have enemies. It's that God deals with his enemies in a different way. He has compassion on them. He beats them. He wins through compassion. Now do you see the challenge I'm presenting? We are naturally worldly. We're bombarded with what we ought to want. We're naturally afraid because we know we have a lot to lose or we feel like we have a lot to lose. And we're naturally condemning of the people around us because it's just so much easier to write people off and to express our emotions naturally. I'm mad, so I want to act mad. This is what's natural for us. So to move to wisdom and courage and compassion, how hard would it be for you to change? Do you think it would be harder than for me not, not to throw the bat when I hit a softball? I mean, that's a small thing, and I couldn't even change that. So I'm kind of presenting you with this sort of impossible vision. Luckily, God does not say, here, uh, this is what you need to change in these ways, and then we can start multiplying. So come back when you're done. Did you notice something in the three flashbacks we had with Peter when he's blowing it, when he's failing? That Jesus, in all three cases, Jesus personally talks to him about it. Hey man, you don't need to use your sword. I mean, if Peter's always blowing it, Jesus could have just like, okay, I'm going to replace you. You're fired. You're fired. Could have done that if you wanted to. But no, God is personally invested in you and personally involved in helping you to transform to move from cowardliness to courage. He has multiplied. His spirit has come. You know, if you follow him, you have the Holy Spirit. God is with you in a very personal way. So, 
That being said, now that you know that God is with you, willing to accomplish the impossible in you, and now that you know kind of what that looks like, that as we look to multiply, that God wants to produce courage and wisdom and compassion, now that you know, are you going to talk to Him about it? There's a, a song that I really like by a band called Come Wind, which is actually a reference to the Holy Spirit as well, where they say about this very thing, we all want to see the fire, but we don't want to feel the flames. We all long to reconcile, but it's easier to stay the same. It rhymes because it's from a song. I told you that. Um, the point is, it's a lot easier to say, okay, I've got the knowledge. I know who God is, and that's cool. I'll leave it at that. So my challenge to you is to not leave it there. You know what God wants to do in you. You know he's capable because you've seen that he can do it. So go to him and talk to him about it. Ask him to work in your life. Because you've got to be willing. It's very, very important. Offer your willingness to God. And I guarantee you, whatever you give him, this is what he does. This is God's trademark. He takes very small offerings, like say a couple loaves, a couple fishes, and he multiplies them in an impossible way. So you offer yourself to God and just, just wait and see. That's my challenge to you. One last thing is that maybe you're here and you're still in the crowd. Maybe you're one of the people gathered around because there's a hubbub and you're saying, what's this all about? Are you guys drunk or what? My challenge to you is, you want to know what's going on, if you want to know what it's all about, ask. If you've got a friend you trust who knows Jesus, ask him. If you want, you can ask me, grab me. You can, you can grab somebody who's got a name tag on. That's one of the reasons they have those on. It's not because their names are so awesome. We all need to know them. <laughs> so, uh, Pastor Jeff, who normally is up here speaking, you ask him. Just ask. Don't let it slide. Don't go, ah, I kind of want to know about that. And then wait till, put it off because you know tomorrow you'll forget about it. And that's easier. Don't do the easy thing.